Hey, Zoltan. Yes. Thank you for making me Hungarian chicken soup because I'm sick. Oh, that's okay. I want to know how you say it in Hungarian, though. Uh, so I would say it's Magyar Csirkeleves. Magyar Csirkeleves. Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> okay, well, enough about Hungarian food. We're getting into Persian food. That's right. Oh. Our guest this week is Leili Tarani Walker, whose pronouns are they, them. And Laylee's an artist who makes extraordinary work, firstly as a way of managing their mental health, but also as a way to investigate their identity and cultural heritage. And as well as art making, they also do a bit of work for artist and tattoo wizard, Germ Flack, who used to be known as Gemma Flack at the time of this recording. Shout outs to you, Germ. We were lucky enough to have Laylee cook for us at our place on Wurundjeri land. And I'd like to acknowledge the ancestors of that land who've gone before and the elders who are taking care of it right now, and the future elders who are going to lead us all in taking exceptional care of it. Like with all good things, there's a language (laughs) warning, and there's also a warning for those who'd prefer not to hear about mental health struggles. Yeah, it's not too intense, but we do get into mental health stuff right from the get-go, and we joke about it in a way that only people who have struggled with their mental health can. Uh, But we really want to stress that whilst sometimes you might just need to laugh about it because otherwise you'll cry, mental health issues are not a laughing matter. Yeah, we have lots of resources in the show notes and up on our website for anyone struggling or wanting support. For our glorious trans community, we love you. And we'll be talking about Laylee's experiences of coming out and being wonderfully supported by their community. And if you need some trans-specific resources, they're in the show notes as well. Shall we find out what Laylee eats? Yes, please. My name is Laylee. I am a artist, apparently. (laughs) Um, not because I have anything important to say, but because if I don't paint, I will kill everyone and then myself. (laughs) It's the only thing I can do. (laughs) That's a good enough reason. That's a damn good reason. When I was doing research on you, which is basically stalking the shit out of your Instagram, the beautiful thing that I was reading about that I was like, oh, I want to ask you more about, and we'll get into it, is the stories and the ideas of the Iranian diaspora that you are interrogating, but in an incredibly aesthetic way that is very you. It's been really nice. Thank you. Look at how you do colour. Do you want to tell us more about the ideas that you're working with at the moment? I mean, I don't know if I'm very articulate with them either. <laughs> we can't I feel like out. it more, <laughs> more comes out through the paintbrush. It kind of just stems from growing up and feeling like I really didn't fit in at the predominantly white school that I was at, but not really mm. I, like I, I only knew my mm. Iranian family, didn't mm. know anyone my age who mm. wasn't white and didn't have any kind of words to ex- express how I felt the way I did or Mm -hmm. why I felt that way. I just couldn't figure out why I was so much hairier than everyone else (laughs) and I didn't have, like, a long, skinny, blonde ponytail that didn't frizz up after I went swimming at Bondi or whatever. Um, (laughs) Growing up, I thought that the more I returned to my grandmother in Shiraz, I would feel like that's where I would find the sense of belonging. And I think I got some of that from my mother because Mm. she left Iran when she was 28, 29, 
um, during the Iran-Iraq war. Yeah. She escaped. Never got to go back until 2003. This is like 20-odd years that she was in Australia because it was illegal to escape from Iran at that time. They closed Mm. the borders. So if you went back after escaping, you'd have to go through court case. You'd be charged. Um, So we didn't get to go back until 2003, and she had always spoken of it as this place of deep connection and belonging. And I guess she does have that because that mm. that's where she grew up, mm. spent a lot of her formative years. But when we got back there for the first time, like in the Lindsay article, I talk about mm. specifically the way that she tied her headscarf. Mm-hmm. And, I saw that. Yep. Yeah. And how it, did not fit at all with all of her friends around her in Iran who'd been living and tying headscarves for years. And that kind of gave us away and she didn't really feel like so much had changed that she didn't feel like it was the place that she had come from anymore Mm. or that she remembered. And I also stuck out like a bloody sore thumb. (laughs) Um, I look like a white Australian in Iran. And I guess a lot of that is because I've been raised here, but I just did not find that sense of connection or belonging that I thought I would find. And there's so much confusion there. And I kind of didn't know what to do with that displacement. But during the early stages of lockdown, I started to get language from trans friends of mine to help to describe my own experience with gender and came out and... There are a lot of fabulous trans writers around the world, one in particular, Coyote Park, uh, who's Two-Spirit, and Mm they um, talk a lot about transness, not like you don't have to feel like you don't fit in either the masculine or the feminine, but it's rather this third path that you take that's entirely separate from the Mm. other two. And I started to think about my kind of nationality I suppose in those terms as like I don't have to feel as though I'm not Australian enough so-called Australian enough or Mm. I'm not Iranian enough and that being a part of the diaspora and being a mixed kid Mm. is actually can actually be its own third path and I can find community and belonging within that but that's kind of consolidating all those ideas there is so much to get into. That's just like so rich and chewy and yeah. yummy. Yeah. Cause that, I mean, not to put pressure on you, but that mm. like, there's so many like threads that can come out from that. That oh, will keep you working for the rest of your life. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> so your paintings sometimes have that real detailed element mm. and then you've got stuff that's like really loose and expressive. Mm. So I want to know if you cook the same way. Or, like, in a similar way, in that sometimes things are, like, quite considered and very pinpoint accuracy and that kind of thing, and then at other times there's a bit more, like, you know, find your way intuitively and let it be, like, really loose. 99% of the time it's a complete mess. (laughs) (laughs) I hated cooking until about this time last year. Like, I would just eat. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is blasphemy on this show, but I would just eat, thing. spaghetti with ketchup on oh, it oh nice <laughs> no how does Eileen feel about that horrible yeah. okay <laughs> the Texas she would no. come over and be like oh your depression spaghetti <laughs> depression spaghetti are you okay babe you haven't had your depression uh. spaghetti today <laughs> but moving in with her because she's a very intuitive cook 
completely changed my life. And she introduced me to this book called An Everlasting Meal. But the whole idea of the book is that um, you can build each meal off of the bones of the last meal that you created. Mm. And like you should be able to put something together, even if you have nothing in the fridge, just by keeping all these off cuts and using them and putting them together as you're cooking. Um, And that completely changed the way that I look at cooking. And it's a lot more intuitive now. Purely because of your sensory connection to things. Oh yeah. And I, I hate always hated following recipes. Mm. Me too. They scare the crap out of me. They never go right. I, no matter what I do, they don't turn out correctly. So I much prefer to just look at what we have in the kitchen and come up with a story and cook yep. that. Yeah. So you're a real improviser. Um, I love that. Yeah. The only time things are really considered is when I'm cooking Persian food. And uh-huh. that's because I'm so terrified that I'm going to mess it up. And yeah. also cooking is like a particularly one of the dishes that I've made for you guys tonight, which I've totally oh, messed up. So excited. But you won't notice. I won't know yeah. this. You won't notice. Well, now we know it because it's been an intuitive <laughs> thing that you did. It's called tadig, and it's kind of like a burnt layer underneath the rice, crispy layer, oh. and you can make it with yogurt or with potatoes. And ideally, you, you just steam the rice with the burnt bit underneath um, mm. in a pot, and you should be able to just flip the pot flip. over, and then you have this beautiful... Caramel colored rice mm-hmm. cake with saffron rice that comes out when you cut into it. But my grandmother always used to teach me that if you flip it over and the right thing doesn't happen, you just mix all the burnt bits in and it's nice and crunchy and no mm. one knows the better. Mm. Perfect. <laughs> so it's the thing. But do you um, think, yes, you are very tactile and quite intuitive when it comes to cooking everything but Persian food? Is that maybe because you have this kind of reverence for it and this kind of respect for it that you want to really kind of follow it to the way that it's done and you maybe want to experience the flavours that you really remembered from your time spent there and and all of that. Oh, shit, yeah. Tell us more about how your Persian background and and even the time that you spent there, like how has that impacted your relationship with food? I feel like it's only done good things for my relationship with food. Food... Over, the, I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone, but food for my family and friends over there, like it's such a communal thing and you're cooking from the time, from before the sun, when the sun comes up, you're wow. making bread or if you're not making bread, you, which is called noon, it's like this beautiful flat bread and mm. um, it's really thick and pillowy. Yeah. If you're not making it, you're waking up before morning prayers to run out to get mm. fresh bread from mm. the like wood-fired oven down the road. Um, And then Mm -hmm. everyone sits and eats breakfast together and it's a really long affair. Mm -hmm. Um, Normally people come home at lunchtime and eat a big lunch and then take a nap and then go back to work and then dinner time happens very, very late and it's really communal again. That's beautiful. Um, But food is so tied into love and homemaking over there and taking care of your friends and family. Yeah. And I feel like it's also a much more community minded society. Like 
everything is so family oriented, but not just the nuclear family. Like mm. I yeah. know who lives upstairs. Yeah. I know who lives down the road. The doors are always open. Yeah. Everyone's it's sharing. The village. It's yeah. that real. You come in. Yeah. You're feeding your neighbors. It's a lot more inviting. Mm-hmm. Growing up in Australia, what's the difference there? So I spent the first half of my childhood, like up until I was 14 or so, in the cross yeah, in Sydney. Wow. And that was very similar. Like we knew everyone around us, mm-hmm. um, knew the whole community, door always open, everyone always welcome. It was like very much an open door policy, yeah. always cooking for people. Mm-hmm. Um but then when, when I was like 14, we moved to a apartment um, and didn't know anyone in the building. And it was a lot more of like a private, quiet, closed off energy um, in the suburb that we moved to. And that was really different. Got mm. kind of like culture shock from yeah. how closed off everything. And this is not to say people from that apartment building are listening. I don't know. This <laughs> <laughs> is not to say you're not friendly. Just very yeah. different could have said energy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They, you could have, they could have dropped off just like a little bit of food. They could have, yeah. They could have done something. Fully. Um, or come and knock on the door. Tell us how you're going. That was kind of a bit of a shock. And also moving down here and living by myself for the first time. Unless... I make an effort to get to know my neighbours. People aren't too interested in getting to know their neighbours and getting to know who lives on the street and, Mm. you know, giving people spare keys and Mm. access to the kitchen, come take flour whenever you need it. Yeah. Which is totally different to how things are on my mum's street in Shiraz. Do you guys know your neighbours? Yeah, Yeah. like really well and it's great. And it's really interesting and quite lovely for Myself and also one of our neighbours who has Ukrainian family is that she gave us a Ukrainian honey cake and I gave oh. them when they got COVID this Hungarian um, oh. like capsicum stew. Oh, yum. And that is that showing of, you know, also like pride in your, your Fully. culture and ancestry, but also showing love and soothing and nourishment what's a love language it is a I love language absolutely yeah. I love language. I'm and i feel coming like into that more and more i'm realizing that like yeah food is definitely and i feel like language. that's a lot like it being a love language is a lot more culturally ingrained in places outside of so-called australia yeah totally um yes. absolutely yeah. absolutely um and so did you find like was your mum cooking a lot of iranian food when you were growing up yes yeah when i was Quite young, when we were still in the cross, she was cooking. Her and dad would have parties, all like big dinner parties all the time. And every Sunday she'd have all of her Persian friends over to play poker Ooh, and would cook cool. a big Persian meal. And I would look forward to Sunday every week. Mm-hmm. Um, but oh my, she's actually going to hate me for saying this. Love you, mom. <laughs> I love you. But when we moved, she picked up this really difficult job and was working crazy hours and couldn't really cook as much, but felt a lot of pressure to like hold up mm. this image mm. as the like hostess with the mostest. Mm-hmm. And so she had a friend who ran a Persian restaurant and she would get mm. her friend to cook 
food and then mum would pick them up in takeaway containers <laughs> and then like quickly arrange it before people arrived. I would one I would 1000% do this. Oh, fully, we me did. too. We when did we do this? that we're eating now. Oh yeah, like, we did not make that buckler. plastic oh. takeaway box. I no, you got to replate it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it you guys didn't pretend that you made it though. <laughs> <laughs> mum would be like, oh, I've been in the kitchen all day. <laughs> <laughs> I just whipped it up. In my lunch break. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. What's, what foods are you homesick for then in terms of how old were you when you first went? I would have been like seven or eight. Mm. And then we went pretty regularly from yeah. then on. So, um, yeah. So. Do you remember oh. like. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't I don't eat meat that often mm-hmm. here. But yeah. fuck me. I miss some like mm-hmm. proper. Because a kebab in Iran, mm. it's not a kebab, it's no. a kebab, mm. and it doesn't come in a bloody wrap. It <laughs> comes on, like, it's lamb that's been, like, massaged for hours <gasps> with this sumac. This is what I want. Oh, this I is can, what I want. I can make you some of this. Oh, my I didn't God. Know you're late lamb. Well, that, this is why I don't like lamb, because it often tastes mm-hmm. like a shoe. It tastes like a, <laughs> an <true>. old <laughs> rubber thong. Yeah. Yeah. That's Dead like set. That, that washed up on the beach, and it's, like, gritty. Mm. But none of that. Yeah. You get lamb and you mince it and then massage it with sumac and put it (laughs) on these like thick flat skewers and cook it over charcoal. Yes. Um, So I'm just going to have really miss that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I bet. Oh my God. My grandmother would have these really long plates that she'd use just for that. And you'd get a plate full of saffron rice Mm -hmm. and then put the skewers of lamb on top. It's called kubide. Kubide. Is the name. Kebab kubide. Oh, my gosh. Um, and that's what I miss the most. <laughs> I also don't have, like, a coal set up, so I don't, I don't know how to do it. And there's a certain technique to massaging the lamb to get mm. it so that when you squeeze it onto this skewer, it stays, oh, yeah. it stays on the bloody on skewer. Yeah. yeah. And the few times that I've attempted to make it here, oh. I just can't get it to stay on the... Bloody skewer. Add like because in some recipes with that they add an egg as a binder. Yeah, the egg works as a binder. No, they do. They They do. do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, cool, cool. Because I thought that that's magic. Yeah, it is magic to work it so much that it like stays. I just get all the proportions wrong. I'm working off like not any specific recipe. It's Mm -hmm. just mum being like, yeah, chuck that in. I love like, the I magic know. of that. Mm-hmm. The magic of the mum or the grandmother saying just chuck that in. I feel like Fully. there's yeah. something. It's it's just like all these ancestors just passing down these like little things where you get to this point where it's just like you can just chuck that in. Yeah. And it, it does is get to it that just point yeah. where it's like the intention is there, so it doesn't need to be perfect. Mm. It's like I'm showing you love with this food, and I've done it a million times. It's part of my DNA now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're not like it, it. Definitely, you kind of transcend the recipe, and you're just <laughs> like, yeah. I want it. that one day. <laughs> we will get there, or all of us will get there one day when we are when we when we have transcended the recipe. We'll be passing them down to younger generations, and I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Just chuck it in. Yeah, like uh, it's not sticking to the thing or it's too gluggy. What do you mean? Like just you'll know. You'll know. (laughs) And so if that's food memories, do you have art memories from both of your hometowns? Yeah. There was one mural growing up in the cross that was on like Darlinghurst Road, presumably before the late 90s, but that's Mm. the earliest I remember. 
Um, and it's definitely been painted over now, but it was this series of four face like silhouettes, um, in squares. And they said, because King's Cross and the Darling House area, was like the center of the queer community mm-hmm. through the eighties and nineties in Sydney, the murals said HIV doesn't discriminate. Do mm-hmm. you? Um, and there was a whole lot of street art throughout the cross and Darlinghurst that was related to the AIDS crisis. Mm -hmm. And I have all these distinct memories of like driving past them every day on the way to school and not knowing what discriminate means or Mm -hmm. who HIV was (laughs) and not being able to piece it together. But as I kind of grew up and started to gain an understanding of what the words were telling me, the picture, the picture really stood out to me and like made a lot more sense in my mind. And that kind of ties into a lot of the art that I saw the first couple of times when I went to Iran, like mountains upon mountains of graffiti. And a lot of it's similar to the um, art in the cross. It's really, really political. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of graffiti uh, related to the Iran-Iraq war Mm. um, and particularly like the government has this whole theory of martyrdom, which is common um, in some people's interpretation of Mm. Islam. And so everywhere you go, there are murals of martyrs, people Mm. who've passed away for the cause of the Islamic revolution um, or the Islamic government. I'm only just thinking of it now, but the parallels between like the faceless faces in the cross um, and all of these like, portraits on the streets of Iran of kids who would be like 13, 14, who would have been sent off to the Iran-Iraq war. Um, Also really stuck out to me as a kid. Um, I think it was also because it's the first time I, going back to Iran in 2003 is the first time I had seen people who, other than my mom's poker friends, who looked like my family. Yeah. (laughs) And that, so seeing people's faces, like who could look like any number of my cousins, um, just with like a early eighties hairstyle plastered up on the wall, that really stuck out to me as a kid growing up. And so art was super political yeah. for a long time. And since it stuck out, it probably started well, maybe even developing like a visual language for you and it maybe heightened your sense of what visual art can represent or what it can mean. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is interesting because I don't feel like, uh, I mean, everything is political, but I Mm. also don't feel like the art that I make is political to me. Mm. It just feels like self-therapy and it's nice that other people want to look at it. (laughs) Um, It doesn't feel like it's making any grand or important statements. And if it happens to, that's sweet. Mm. Um, but that's not why I made it. Totally. Pow, pow, pow questions. Let's go. So who's your favorite cook? Um, my mother. Yes. Hands Hell down. Yeah. What's yes. your mum's name? Firuze. Shout out to Firuze. Yes. Shout out. Shout out <laughs> who's your favorite artist? Um, at the moment, a painter, I mean, it changes day to day, but at yeah, the moment I'm, 
just got put onto this painter, Iman Rad. He oh, does these incredible, super bright paintings that are like huge, really large scale and kind of a bringing together of both like Iranian miniature style paintings oh. and more Western imagery. And that really speaks to me. Um, those colors and they, I just love color so yeah I and I love artworks yeah. that I can get lost in yep yes um those and pinks and the blues and the oranges I'm yes. like it's like we are we are actually <laughs> yeah. one of those paintings right now we got it I even yeah. use it in your bright yellow jacket we'll put a photo of you guys next to each other <laughs> yeah we the... have just re- actually there's yeah. a question relating to that that comes up later so that's oh, pretty easy. funny perfect um I just realized I have baklava all over my shirt oh, well, that's all right that's fine it's, it's impossible a, to it's not a, get it yeah, all over you it's yeah. a snack for later you guys what's eat? your favorite kitchen sound um, when you make mac and cheese, uh, I don't, I've never made mac and cheese in my life, but Texan housemate often makes uh-huh. mac and cheese. When you make mac and cheese and you've got to test if it's goopy enough, yeah. the sound of the spoon in the mac and cheese. Oh, it's like stirring it. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. Oh, I that know, thickness. That I think Cardi so talks about it on WAP. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. The mac oh and God. cheese sound. That's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Yum. Um, what is your favorite kitchen smell? Sumac. Oh. Mm. Yeah. Oh, and I, 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 it almost, it definitely smells better than a mouthful of it straight tastes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I just get this intense sumac actually and dry cat food. Oh. Mm. It smells. Together? No. <laughs> but the dry cat food smells so tasty. I don't know what it is. Anytime we have cats in the house and I'm feeding them, I'm like, this smells like it would taste so good. Mm. And it never tastes as good as it smells. <laughs> you yeah. always got to try. Yeah. We've all done it. Snack. Yeah, go with the sumac. <laughs> We've all, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sumac, sumac. Stick with the sumac. <laughs> What's the latest thing you've learned to cook? Don't laugh. I learned to make mashed potato. <laughs> Does one ever fully learn how to make mashed potato? I don't know. I, there's no laughter seems. coming from us. We're yeah. just like, like what? what are your secrets? What's, what's the secret? I mean, when I say Butter. learn, what I mean is I tried to cook it for the first time. Oh. <laughs> yeah. How go? Um, pretty good. My technique is as much like all the garlic that you have in the house. Oh. Use that. Yeah. And I roast the garlic and then squeeze it out of the Oh, yeah. And mash it so up good. with the potato oh, that is so, so that all good. that caramelized garlic is in there. Mm-hmm. And coconut milk or cream. Ooh. Wow. This ain't your usual yeah. potatoes <laughs> squished with a fork. This is like. Wow. Yeah. This is serious. I love that. <laughs> when I was looking at your work, I found something really interesting that you'd said. And the quote was, the scarcity principle is a useful tool for Western capitalist patriarchy to maintain itself. And I was just like, oh. I probably wrote that right after I came out of uni. <laughs> so when I picked my jaw up off the floor and was like, then I once I'd stopped fist pumping, um, if the scarcity principle shows up for you, how does it manifest at the moment in your life? Um, I don't know if it does or if I let it too much Mm. anymore and I think a lot of that has been finding really strong queer communities and like building family outside of a nuclear family um 
Yeah, I think it would it creeps in a a fair bit with work Mm. and worrying about whether or not I've made a massive bloody mistake Mm. becoming a painter and not (laughs) a management consultant or I don't know something (laughs) high paying. (laughs) Even even the way that those words came out of your mouth kind of answers that question, (laughs) right? (laughs) Sorry to any management consultants. Yeah, love you. Yeah, or also big shout out to all my management consultant friends yep. who have bankrolled my entire art yeah career. exactly keep yeah. loving my paintings thank you so much <laughs> yeah because it takes it's that thing of like it takes a village to raise an art career and if it's going to be the management <laughs> the consultants that are going to be part of that village like we need you because that's how we make more work oh yeah give me mm. the blood money mm-hmm. yeah i want it and yeah. i want yeah. it now yeah and at the same time <laughs> one really wonderful way of keeping yourself grounded in sometimes when you do have that thought of like, what the fuck am I doing? What have I done? Is having community of people that understand where you're at and that you don't need to compare yourself to as harshly as, oh yeah, you know, which happens a lot, I think, for artists that see society moving around them at a different rate or a different pace or like, oh yeah, especially relating to money yeah so absolutely stronger communities that you can then look back to and be like oh no I'm grounded in this and I made this decision for a reason well I feel like community is the biggest antidote to the scarcity principle yeah because if you have people around you that you've nurtured a relationship with Mm. almost like a familial relationship with you know that whatever happens You've got people around you to take care of you. And I think I I necessarily grew up in, and a lot of this is like mum coming to a new country and not having um, the community that she might have had elsewhere mm. and also being somewhat mistrustful, mm. um, very understandably. Mm-hmm. Um, or I sort of grew up in an environment where like the only people that you can trust and rely on are your blood relatives. Mm. Um, and that always scared the crap out of me. And that's been a source of apprehension for a lot of people in our generation, which is why I'm really happy mm. that things are moving towards like widening what we consider to be family networks. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Breaking free from that really individualistic mindset that oh yeah totally i mean that that is like western capitalism anyway it's all about the self and um it is not so much about community so it's yeah it's just really wonderful that the conversation is shifting sometimes i wonder though about like being an artist who's like at the moment at least like i'm just working with myself yeah and how much i can justify that in light of wanting to build community Mm -hmm. and whether or not I can even have an individual practice if, or an individual practice is worthy if it's not taking care of and inviting other people in. Mm -hmm. I think that's so come to my solo show. Yeah. Excited (laughs) because that voice that you have, like being alone in the studio or doing the making is one thing, but also the sharing of that that's where the community is because people come to see your work, but also people take your work home with them. Yeah. And even people, you know, mm. online, 
I'm just like sucked into that vortex of like the color, especially. I'm just like, oh. yeah, that I guess the idea of community now is kind of different and like the definitely like the online world. Yeah. And so I can see how being in the studio, you're like, I, it feels like I'm, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm too focused on myself. And that mm. if you're not directly contributing to community in ways that are like very obvious and very tangible, you can feel like it's, you're not doing enough, but we've all got our different superpowers. And if there's this chance that your work is something that can educate or just show people where you've been, what you're doing, or simply make people go, holy fuck, like orange (laughs) and orange and blue together make my life. That's a thing. We've all experienced that when we walk in somewhere and we see work that just slaps you in the face with happiness. And you're just like, Mm. I love this. I don't know why this speaks to me. So it's very valuable. Your work is making a difference. And I guess. Thank you. I love that you're not, you're not sitting back and spending too much time thinking about that. Like you're just making the work because you need to make the work. Like if you were interrogating it from that other perspective too much, you'd probably just be like, fuck this, I'm becoming a management consultant. Because it's, <laughs> you know, that's a lot of pressure. You know, if you walk into the studio and you're like, how will I change the world today or how can mm. I contribute directly to the community in a certain way? And it's like, oh, God, that's that's <laughs> that's a lot to be doing it with art. When, so much. You know, especially if it's like you're early, early in your career when it's gonna, it's a marathon, you know, like... That's all, yeah, mm. so much pressure. Ooh, yeah. I can't wait to talk to you when you're like 70. That's going <laughs> to be so good. <laughs> and speaking of the marathon, like mm. we also don't necessarily see that reflected in the way that Western capitalist society runs either. Mm. And we do need to remember to create a sustainable career over the long term mm. rather than this kind of race to some beacon of success in front of us whatever that might be and you know maybe through that this idea of the starving artist is also sort of portrayed where it's the scarcity mentality it's the romanticizing of struggle it's to me that that's kind of what comes up but for you the term starving artist like what, what does that bring up and how do you feel about that? A lot of things uh, from the outset, it pisses me off that um, enough, there isn't enough funding in the arts to, or just in, I feel, honestly, mm. I feel like we need a universal basic income Ooh, so yeah. that people aren't stressed about how they need, how they're going to pay rent mm-hmm. and more people have more time to be able to devote to creative practice or things outside of earning money also because like I'm in a bloody lucky position I have a safety net and a lot of people don't have Mm. that Mm. and I know plenty of people who have infinitely more interesting things to say in much more talented than myself but uh for myriad reasons have other priorities in terms of like just surviving and getting through to the end of the day with Mm -hmm. a roof over their head. And so sitting in a bloody pretty studio in Coburg and Mm. painting all day Mm. just isn't an option. Yeah. That makes me so mad. Yeah. There are so many people with such good things to say and draw and show the rest of us. Absolutely. Um, So that's. It's a real shame that it does (laughs) have to. It has to take the backseat. 
Oh, yeah. It's um, a shame. And I also hate the romanticization of it. Yeah, <laughs> oh my God, me fucking too. hard to create when you're stressed about paying rent. Oh, and, yeah. And like your bills. Money and... stress is like no other stress. Like it mm. yeah. sits on you like a heavy weight on your shoulders and you mm-hmm. can't get rid of it. And because everything is a transaction, mm-hmm. like even just going out for a drink with a, yeah. a loved one, mm-hmm. no matter you cannot escape from that stress, yeah. no matter what you try and do. Yeah. And if it's not stress about not having money for the drink, it's guilt for yes, it is being guilt. offered or always being the broke friend. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I don't think there's any romance in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not fun. <laughs> no. yep. And I'm saying that having like the easy end of the stick. <laughs> like yeah. I've had a pretty easy go of it. <laughs> And that's not the case for most people in this industry. Yeah. It makes me mad. Mm. Stop romanticizing it. <laughs> yep. And stop expecting it to be the norm as well. I think that's something for me really, it just pisses me off that people just expect that it's like they think it's completely fine for artists to be living below the poverty line. It's like, how dare you? Mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, artists and like this goes for visual artists and musicians. Mm. Yeah. Like everyone in the creative field contributes so much Mm. to the functioning and also the, I guess, attractiveness of a society or a place for Mm. people to come to and visit and live in. Yeah. Like it's entirely about the culture and that all comes from the creative industries. Yeah. And I feel like that's not reflected in the way that people are enumerated. Mm. And bouncing off that, I hate the whole idea that, like, those who can't do Mm. teach and also that um, in order to be an artist, you have to be doing it full time. Otherwise, you're not a real artist. You can't have another full time job or anything like Mm -hmm. that because it's bloody hard to make a go of it. Yeah. And that safety net is crucial. So That that safety net is Mm -hmm. crucial. You need it. Yeah. Teaching is an excellent way. Yeah. To, like, not only get money and survive, but also to be sharing something that you love with yeah. a whole new generation and inspiring mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Incredible. And I know so many people who are so talented who need to work full time to be able to support their art practice. It's and that normal. doesn't make them any less of an artist. You can paint once a month yes. and be an artist. It's, yeah. It has nothing to do with how often you're doing it. Exactly. I don't it's think. It's so normal. It makes me angry. Yeah. And also the whole idea that you have to be on your practice the whole time, 24-7. Like, that's all Mm. the starving artist thinks about and does and nothing else is a concern because I feel like you can't make art if you're not actually spending any time living Mm -hmm. and not making the art. You need some input so Mm -hmm. that you can output. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, you need something to respond to and if you're just like... Yeah, if you're just, like, shitting out art, you're going to shit out bad art at some point. Like, it's not... It's it's, coming. It's not going to be good. (laughs) Yeah. And so, because you're the incredible Gemma Flack, hopefully we'll interview Gemma Flack Ah! at some point. So you're Gemma Flack's assistant. Yes. Is that something that... that, So that's sustaining you and allowing you to just be... Yeah. So much of the way that I sustain myself, um, a bunch of artists in the studio that I work in, including... Francis Cannon and Gemma Flack. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just such a community spirit that first mm. Francis was like, oh, shit, you're out of work and yeah. you need something that you can do. I need help packing orders. I'm so sick of packing orders. Yeah. I need help running an online store. And then from there, I 
kind of snowballed and I started doing admin work for a bunch of other artists and who boy doing admin for other people so much easier than doing my own yeah. admin. I was gonna ask because I'm allergic to admin something so in much. it just I I'm hate not gonna... it I hate doing my own admin but then organizing somebody else's stuff it's kind of like when you go to someone's house and you're like oh I'll clean this and they're like oh god don't and you're like no that I'd love to do that like yes. clean, mm-hmm. I don't know there's no stakes because yeah. it, I mean there are stakes it's a job but it's it, there's no personal personally you're not stakes. yeah and it's yeah. kind so, of like novel as well because you're like fully. I, and yeah. it's easier to back other people than yourself like mm. you know, oh, for yeah. most people it's a lot easier especially creatively to back other people than it is to back yourself completely mm. um I mean it's just been such a game changer for me because like I have multiple days a week when I can't get out of bed but this is the kind of that's chill but um this is the kind of work that I can do and can do really well Mm. from bed Mm. and it also feels so wonderfully community-minded like of course it's other people in my industry who are like oh shit you need help I really don't want to answer my emails (laughs) I love this um which love and hopefully I will get to a point where I have enough income that I can outsource my emails and admin and financial stuff to yeah. someone who needs a bit of extra cash on the side while they're painting. Because That's... I've, yeah, I mean, both of them, Gemma and Francis, have taught me so much about grant writing, about mm-hmm. like taxes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Scary stuff like that that I would never touch with a 10-foot pole. I'm very much, with my own admin, I'm very much like, oh, it just it doesn't exist. Yeah. i got to paint. So. Yeah. yeah. So what's your favorite kitchen utensil or gadget? Um, either Nutribullet or Ooh. stand mixer. Oh, I could yeah. never afford a stand mixer myself, but my housemate has one and makes excellent icing and meringue and it's so easy to use and I don't have to stand there beating something. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. Then and also I- every cake recipe, and mm. anytime I look up a fancy mm. cake recipe, it's like, yeah, just use your stand mixer. And I'm like, my what? Yeah, I don't even know what that is. My I know, like, I think I know. It's just like a yeah. It's one the of the doodads. Yeah, yeah. We're making like a claw going down into a bowl action here. Mm-hmm. That yes. thing. Yes, that thing. Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Electric beta doodad thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's it. That thing. Yeah, it really helps with like, especially with meringues, like mm. hand beating that. A, it's exhausting. B. It can split and it's just, you just want to throw everything out the window. It's the most annoying thing ever. <laughs> Ruined. Mm, Ruined. <laughs> Would you say you are sweet, sour, salty, spicy, savory, or umami? Like what flavor? What's your favorite flavor? What's your flavor? Um, What's your flavor? Probably umami, Ooh, I reckon, is nice. my favorite. Or do you mean me as a person? Oh, that could be you as a person too, if you it want to go there. could be you as a person, but yeah. Because it depends on the day. Mostly I'm sweet, uh, but I get pretty salty too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you share a kitchen disaster story or a funny story? Yes. Oof. Yes. We used to have these massive Christmas parties when I was growing up and mum and dad would invite all their friends. Everyone would sleep um, the night and um, we'd always have to put the cat food up on the table because my sister's dog would come and just wolf up <laughs> the cat food. 
So we just, mum just puts the cat food up on the table and she's cooking, getting ready and people are standing around the kitchen table, coming in from the courtyard, going into the dining room, all this sort of stuff. One of her really old, really lovely friends, Robert, comes in. He goes, oh, Firuze, I have been dying to try this Persian dip. And before anyone can stop him, he's got a cracker in his hand (laughs) and he eats the cat food. Everyone goes dead silent and is watching him chew and think about it. It's like tuna cat food from a tin. So the worst. This isn't the good smelling drink. Yeah, I was going to say, this is not what we were talking about before. (laughs) Horrible. Anyway, he swallowed it and very politely was like, this is beautiful. It's wonderful. I'm so honored that I've been able to eat this. Thank you for preparing it for us. Oh, my God. Which your mum like, it's, I made it today. I've just been working on it all day. <laughs> Mum's like, Robert, that's cat food. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. The look on his face. He tried to be so polite. He's <laughs> like, oh, I thought it was a bit fishy. Because <laughs> it was, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's so bad. What's so your funny. cooking superpower? Oh, gosh. My specialty is just from bulk years of being depressed and making it, I'm going to have to say spaghetti with ketchup. That's the only <laughs> thing I'm well-versed enough to say that. as a specialty. Oh. It's nice. disgusting. Nice. I cringe that I ate that for so many years. But my secret mm-hmm. is macerating onions. Ooh. When you get red onions, mm-hmm. if you chop them up, like, before you chuck them in a salad if you're eating them raw. Yeah. Um, To take some of the bite out of them. You just put them in a bowl with some white vinegar. Mm-hmm. Uh, vinegar. Mm-hmm. I say vinegar wrong, <laughs> apparently. Everyone makes fun of me for it. It's vinegar. It's however you want to say it. Yeah. Say okay. It. Yeah. I say it like there's an E in it. Yeah. Vinegar. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. If you chuck it in anything acidic and make it for like 15 minutes, it brings out the color, makes Ooh. the onions really, really bright and mm-hmm. takes out the bite so that they're just really fresh and tasty oh, awesome. and you just get the sweetness of the red onion without the onion breath. That's oh, such I a love good tip. This. Oh, my God. That's my secret. Yes. <laughs> Hell yes. In a few words, how would you describe your cooking? Um, chaotic. Love this. <laughs> and stressed. Always stressed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always stressed until the last minute. I can't yeah. have anyone else in the kitchen. Oh, okay. So like solo. Yeah, solo time. Mm. If people are in the kitchen, I get pissed off. Mm. Okay. Good what time. are you? It can wait. <laughs> and then you feed them afterwards, and your love language is back, and it's all yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> sorry for yelling at you. I'm I so made sorry. You this incredible food. <laughs> uh, we love this question. It's my favorite. Um, if you could recreate an existing artwork out of food, what would it be? Okay, I actually hate this artwork, but you know, and maybe I'll get some flack for this, but you know the bean in Chicago, the giant silver bean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'd make that out of cake. Oh, what kind of cake? Ideally like a cheesecake. I don't know if it's doable. Maybe like a Fajoa cheesecake. And then with like a nice glaze over it to make it really shiny. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just because I love Fajoa cheesecake and I want a really big... I want a big Make block a of it. Make a giant one. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> That's bloody perfect. Is that whack? 
That's the first thing that came to mind. I love that. The best. And especially because cheesecake is like the best thing in the world. It is. So, yeah. So the recipe is what you've made for us tonight. Yeah. And that's which you've done like a little bit of a chat about. Tell us about this recipe. Um, It's just kind of like the quintessential when you ask people what their favorite Persian dish is. Hmm. People will say gourmet sabzi. Mm-hmm. It's spelled G-H-O-R-M-E-H-S-A-B-Z-I. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's traditionally made with lamb. Uh-huh. Um, and slow cooked for like all day so that oh. the lamb just splits apart and spreads oh. through the stew. You don't even notice it's there. Mm-hmm. I actually hated it growing up. <laughs> um, I think just because it's green and stew-like. <laughs> yeah. And my child brain could not get around yeah. that. I couldn't understand it. confronting, it. isn't it? Yeah, super confronting. <laughs> but as I've gotten older the smell of it in particular really really reminds me of my mum's mm-hmm. cooking and reminds me of those su- because those Sundays that's all anyone wanted to eat when everyone would play poker mm-hmm. so it really reminds me of weekends growing up it's really simple you just chop up fenugreek and coriander spring onions dill any herb oh. you can any mm. fresh herbs you can find chop them up so Ooh. fresh fenugreek yeah, amazing! Wow, um, and chop them all up and sear them in the bottom of a pan mm-hmm. until they get really fragrant, mm-hmm. and then you chuck a bunch of diced brown onions in mm-hmm. and let that sit. Traditionally, then you'd put a whole lot of turmeric in and some lamb, mm-hmm. but you can also substitute the lamb for pinto beans, mm-hmm. which is my favorite vegetarian substitution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They also survive the long cooking. Like Yeah. Well, they, almo- they like, don't just get really mushy. They just get really mushy, which kind yeah. of, that's what happens with the lamb too. Yeah. Um, and at the very end, maybe half an hour before you're done, you chuck in, they're only available at Persian and Afghan supermarkets, or at least that's the only place I've ever seen them. Yeah. But they're called Limu Amani, and it, they're like dried black lemons or limes either or and they're super lightweight because they're fully dried Wow! and you get them and you punch a bunch of holes in them and chuck them in the stew Um, and they just fill the whole stew with this really sweet citrus taste so you have the herbs and the citrus and the turmeric for an earthiness Mm. And it's bloody lovely. And the best thing about it is it's great when you first cook it, but I feel like everyone will, who has had it will attest to this. <laughs> it's even better if you leave it for a day after cooking it. It's nice. infinitely better as a leftover because it coagulates mm-hmm. a whole lot yeah. and becomes even more stew-like and thick. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's just excellent to have as the reason I cooked it is excellent to have as something you've cooked that you're going to reheat. Oh, yeah. Tastes I even better. I love this. I love this. <laughs> yeah. And so what would you serve with it? Saffron, rice, um, and tadig, the crunchy bits in the rice are really yeah. nice, having some crunch in with the mm-hmm. stew. Yeah. Normally my mum would serve it with a Shirazi salad, which is tomatoes, red onions, Lebanese cucumber, all chopped up and mixed in together mm. with like a 
white vinaigrette dressing. That's so perfect. Um, like, so it's just very love. fresh and yeah. light and summery. Wow. And um, what about what about drinks? Like, what would you drink with it? What goes well with it? Tea is the tradition. Like, that's normally what you'd yeah. be drinking at what any kind? given time of day. Cellion. Oh, cool. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. I've, I've only ever read it. I've only ever read it too, and that's why it took me a moment. But yeah, I yeah. think that's, that sounds right. Um, uh, but just the tea you get at the Persian or Afghan supermarket. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and you have the, the way you have that is you steep it in a teapot, way, way more tea than you would normally have, mm-hmm. and then you just keep boiling the kettle and you use yep. the teapot as kind of like a cordial mm-hmm. yep. and you put some sugar and saffron in it. Oh, the color, yeah. would be, the color would be stunning. Yeah. Beautifully red. Mm. Um, wow. So it's really sweet and yummy. The other thing you can drink with it, which I actually hate, <laughs> um, but everyone else in my family loves is called Dur, and it's like a fermented, almost fizzy kind of yogurt. I was going to say, I know this. Yeah. Yum. Yeah. Love. Everyone loves it. I cannot stand it. Yeah. Understandable. <laughs> I think I'm a bad Iranian, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's intense. It's so I've intense. It. Yeah. But it's my mom's favorite drink. And she would, when I was little, she'd always drink it and then come and try and kiss me with it on her top lip. <laughs> and it would drive me insane. Oh, get away. <laughs> Where in Melbourne is your favorite Persian supermarket? Uh, there's an excellent one in Dandenong, cool. but I haven't been there for like since pre-COVID. And mm. now uh, there's one super locally, yeah. Zam Zam in cool. Preston Markets. Oh, nice. Oh, Markets. Perfect. Yeah. It's called Zam Zam Supermarket. Yeah. Zam Zam a- means supermarket. Oh. <laughs> supermarket. No confusion. Yeah. Uh, is there any ingredient or any any sort of food? that you would go to extra lengths for, say, like getting on public transport and taking the Dan- train to Dandenong, like, or, or, you know, going really out of your way. Like, yeah. what are some of the things that... Those dried make- lemons, getting um, good saffron is so important. Don't, I don't fuck with supermarket saffron. Hey. <laughs> and so go to the, go to the Iranian supermarkets for yeah. that. Yeah. Well, you'll just get it like a lot more for a much better price. Yeah. And it'll cool. be infinitely tastier mm-hmm. um and also a lot of the saffron in supermarkets is synthetic yes yeah I, I, i've heard i've heard about this yeah <laughs> so gross <laughs> shit yeah um so i'll travel for those two things mm-hmm. and also for good dates oh yeah but supermarkets now have medjool dates, they have medjool dates which like- they didn't when I was growing up, yeah. so we'd have to travel specifically to go find them. I know. I've only just learnt that the ones that aren't medjool dates, you were saying, Claire, oh, that they're, they're like soaked in vegetable oil or something. Yeah. They're horrible for you. They're apparently. hard as a rock. You can break a window with them. Mm. Yeah. I hate them. Yeah, so we, we always touch get good dates too. Mm. Medjool dates. Kind of like My a, grandmother had a date tree, date bush, date tree in mm-hmm. her backyard. Mm-hmm when I was growing up and pick fresh dates for breakfast yeah. every morning and then fresh quince and also make quince jam yeah. for us to have with breakfast every morning. And that's quince. Yeah. I don't see much like fresh quince mm-hmm. ever anywhere down uh, here. We got a couple from our neighbors recently. Oh, yeah, right. I'm not sure where they got it from, but I think they picked it. They're pretty good at 
like urban foraging and how just like picking stuff. So, um, but it was unfortunate because I just had no idea what to do with it. And we put it in the fridge to oh, yeah. save it for later and then just forgot about it and oh, it no. just kind of liquefied in the fridge. I had to chuck it out and it felt so bad. But, yeah, Quinn's, it's around. It's around. There we'll you call go. you next time we get some yeah. more. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember the last time I saw a fresh Quinn's. I'm not sure what they look yeah. like. <laughs> it's um, not good. It's not yeah, good. Yeah, surprise, surprise, they're not red. No. Oh. No. <laughs> no. They're very green. I don't know how they get that colour. When you make, like, quince paste out of them. It comes, like, even in the... I think it might be the heat. Because even the jam that my grandmother would make mm. would be, like, this beautiful peachy pink. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Interesting. You have just been so generous and so inspiring to listen to. And yeah, too we're kind. so happy that you're here with us and we're so happy... That we get to eat now. Yes. Oh my god! Thank you so 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 much. Thank you so much for We're having me. We're so honoured to have you, and so excited to honour you and honour your ancestors by getting straight into this food. And yum, I'm excited. So Screams yeah, let's go. Squeaks now, just like harming <laughs> himself a little bit. What are you doing, mate? Oh, oh, oh my god! Yeah, that's probably a good yeah, time it's probably a good start. time to <laughs> just like <laughs> cut it. Thank you to our dog Squeak for sabotaging the end of that episode. And thank you to our wonderful guest, Laylee, for cooking for us. And you can find their recipe on our website at www.whatartistseat.com.au. And if you loved listening to this as much as we absolutely loved making it, you can leave a rating and a review in the podcast app that you're listening to right now. And you have no idea how happy that makes us. And it also helps other people to find the show. Mm -hmm. Like Paul McCartney, just in case. But he's looking and he doesn't know where it is. So we're over here. He eats. eats. But Uh, we don't know what he eats. But we want to know. See you soon, Maka. If you do make Laylee's recipe, please let us know how it went by sharing it on social media and hashtagging the name of the recipe and tag what artists see. We will see you in a fortnight. See you in a fortnight. Bye.